Hey, everybody. Welcome to The Fizzle Show. I'm your host, Corbett Barr, and this is our podcast about earning a living independently doing something you love. What happens when you build your entire life and business around travel, and then a global pandemic grinds it to a halt? Gary Arndt is an old friend of Fizzle and three-time travel photographer of the year in North America, and he runs everything everywhere, which he has done for quite a while, since 2007. Gary, thanks so much for being here today. Thanks for having me. You reached out uh, recently because of some changes I've been making, and let me know that you've had to make quite a few changes over this year. And I know I've heard similar stories from other friends who have built their business around travel. Tell us, first of all, I guess, about everything everywhere and what you've done since 2007. Uh, 2007, I came up with the idea of selling my home to travel around the world for a year. And that one year basically never ended. <clears throat> I just kind of kept traveling. And I had a website that I started. So my background was in doing internet stuff. I had an early internet company that I started in the 90s. So starting a website was kind of a natural thing for me to do to share my travels with my, my friends and family. And as I started traveling, it started to build a following. Uh, my early travels, a lot of people when they go around the world, they'll go to like the big cities of the world, London, Paris, Hong Kong, Singapore, stuff like that. And I was going to minor islands in the Pacific, like Tonga, Samoa, the Cook Islands, Vanuatu, stuff like that. And so I, I kind of developed a following because I was doing something weird. And there just weren't many of these travel websites at the time of people that were actively traveling. And the audience kept growing. Uh, 2010, Time Magazine came out with their list of the top 25 blogs in the world. And they put mine on it and that helped it out. And then I started winning major travel journalism awards. And so basically I would, you know, I was a travel blogger. Uh, my website was pretty successful. I have a large following on social media. I became very well known for my photography and uh, kind of your typical business affiliate sales, you know, display ads on the website. I'd run some tours, stuff like that. I was doing campaigns for, to, uh, for travel brands for, uh, tourism boards and destinations. That was pretty much the business. And, and for people that aren't familiar, you, you, over those years from 2007, when you started travel blogging, wasn't really known as a thing, but this entire industry grew up around you to the point where there are major conferences with hundreds and hundreds of attendees who are either travel bloggers or who wanted to be. And it became a thing that, like you said, tourism boards and adventure companies were reaching out to travel bloggers for partnerships, right? So that they could sponsor right. a post or have you come over and explore their, you know, country or uh, take a tour or something and then write about it. Yeah. And it was a natural extension of what had always existed with uh, travel magazines and travel sections of newspapers mm -hmm. as those died away. And pretty much all of them have at this point uh, to give you an idea in the, in the most recent Lowell Thomas awards, which is like the Pulitzer prize for travel writing. Uh, there used to be over a hundred newspaper sections that would submit uh, for the competition in three different categories. Uh, this year there was one category and six. And wow, it's yeah. I mean, most of them have gone. Most of the travel magazines have died. Uh, and this was before the pandemic. So this is just the Internet, you know, culling off the old media and, and doing stuff like that. Uh, but yeah, so th that was pretty much the business. 
And um, were you, did you have employees in this business? Did you run it on your, your own? I had employees on and off at different times, depending on what I was doing. I launched a travel photographer, an online uh, course for travel photography. I still have that, but I had some help doing that. I've, so I've had assistance and whatnot as I've been tra traveling, uh, doing different things for me. But at the, this year, I, I haven't had anyone work for me. And was the business fairly steady from year to year for you recently? Uh, sort of. The, the, the thing that has changed the most <clears throat> from when I started, when I started, Twitter and Facebook weren't a big deal. They were there, but they weren't, you know, huge. Instagram didn't exist. Pinterest didn't exist. Uh, it was my website was my social media. And the way people have used websites has changed dramatically. You know, getting comments and RSS subscribers used to be the thing. Right. And that's not anymore. And so there's been a rise in influencers with quotes around that, mm -hmm. which are, you know, people on YouTube and Instagram. And it's a lot of just here I am in this place here. I'm taking a selfie in this place. Yep. Not necessarily explaining what that place is or why it's important. It's just kind of about them. Yeah. And that's become very popular. Um, it, it, yeah, it's been, it was somewhat steady, but it's changed a lot as well. And yeah. I should also add in the few months before the pandemic started, Google has started to change their algorithms, whereas they were stealing more and more travel searches for themselves because they're trying to monetize hotel bookings and flight bookings and things like that. So a lot of people I, I saw were seeing serious decreases in traffic from search. Much of the traffic people were getting several years ago from social media has all but evaporated because of algorithm changes. Uh, Facebook doesn't like anyone leaving the, you know, their community anymore. The walled garden. Right. So for a lot of bloggers where it used to be a social platform where people would come to my website to read it and leave comments every day, it's shifted to like 90% search and everyone's kind of writing the same article now. It's just a listicle for SEO and, you know, I, I just describe it as like crabs in a bucket because SEO is a zero sum game. Yeah. If I rank number one for a keyword, you can't and vice versa. And that's really kind of what I've, I saw was happening. And then and the pandemic hit and then that kind of <laughs> made that, everything fall apart. That threw everything for a loop. Uh, and, I, you know, it's interesting because we, we talk a lot about being careful about where you build your business and different platforms that can change the rules over time. And of course, people have known about SEO changes, but SEO changes usually benefit one independent business over another because of an algorithm change and Google starts funneling traffic to, to different sites because they perceive them to be higher quality. But when Google decides to start competing directly in your industry, that's a whole different ball game. And I imagine it's, it's kind of scary when you start to see that if, you know, someone goes in and they type in best hotel in Vanatu and you used to get a ton of traffic from that. And now suddenly Google is showing results for hotels because they are booking them directly. They're serving basically as a, an Expedia or a Travelocity themselves. Yeah. And, and you can't compete with Google on their own terms. I mean, you yeah. just can't. And it's become a, a really big problem. And it's, it's also just sort of when you start to look at what sites, what sites are being successful with SEO, uh, everything that Google says you should not do, they do. 
and it works, includes buying links and right. all the other shady SEO practices. And, you know, one of the top travel websites right now is a website that has no original photography. Everything comes from a stock site and they just pump out the same article every day, 15 best things to do in blank. And they just, every day, it's just, it's like a machine driven thing. And obviously the writers are never visiting these places. They're just doing research off Wikipedia and other things. Yeah. And they're doing fantastically well doing this. And Google talks about, oh, you need authority and expertise, not in travel. And the other big problem with travel is that people only care about travel when they're about to go on a trip. <laughs> you don't follow travel in the same way that you follow fashion or technology or sports or politics, where there's always something new happening, right? And you want to follow what that new thing is. There's a new iPhone coming out, a new line of fashion or whatever. Travel's not that way. They're not making anything new. Roman ruins... I've been there a while. They're going to be there. <laughs> Nothing's happening. Right. And so the, the, at least, you know, so an average travel website would get less traffic than say an average food website. And they have their own problems because it's all just recipes. And, you know, I'm sure you're familiar with that. Uh, but the, 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 what compensated for it is the fact that when you did go on a trip, you'd spend more money than if you were buying a recipe. Right. right. So on affiliate sales, if I sold a trip to Antarctica or something, you know, I could get a couple thousand dollars from one sale. Wow. So that was the, the flip side from that. But no one's going to Antarctica now. So, And any sense for uh, the size of the travel industry overall uh, over the past few years? It, it seems like it was at a peak. I mean, everyone was traveling. Um, airline, you know, trips were more accessible, it seemed. And, uh, especially, I mean, if you just follow on Instagram and, and other places, it, it seemed like everyone was everywhere. I had to sneeze. I'm sorry. No problem. <laughs> Globally, the, and there's a lot of debate about this. It's somewhere between a couple trillion dollars to about $10 trillion globally annually. So it's a very large industry on a par with things like agriculture or energy. Globally, it is one of the largest uh, industries in the world. And there are many countries to which it is the largest industry. Yeah. And we're talking countries like Spain, you know, tourism is the largest thing they have. So it is a very big industry. And in all fairness, I never in a million years would have thought that it would just disappear, disappear overnight. Right. And, 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 and what's happened to you and your business is a story that's been played out a million times this year with other parts of the ecosystem, other writers, photographers, bloggers, influencers, yes. all those people, but also major restaurants. economies, restaurants, yeah, every, and, yeah. Any, uh, movie theaters, everything's been hit. Yeah. So I'm, I'm certainly not unique in that respect, but yeah, I just never thought that you'd be like, you know, being a farmer and then waking up one day, finding out that no one's eating anymore. Yeah. Right. And so what do you do with the land in that case? And, and I wanted to talk to you. This was really interesting to me because we've, we've talked about the pandemic and, you know, there have been winners and losers, I think, uh, obviously in the past year, but it's interesting to hear about someone who didn't necessarily just, uh, decide to ride it out. You have, you have done something about it and, and changed course dramatically. So, so first of all, tell us, tell us about like what happened when the pandemic first hit and you realized that travel was going to be majorly impacted. 
Well, at first I didn't think that. So I came back from Portugal last day of February. I get home, I get sick. I probably had COVID. I don't know. I never got tested because at that time there weren't many tests and they were giving it just to healthcare workers. I'd go under the assumption that I did. I thought that this would be done by May, maybe April. This would be mm-hmm. like a, a four-week thing. Everyone locks up and then it disappears and then we go on with our lives. And, and we had examples of that. You, you, I'm sure, had to decide if you were going certain places over the past decade because of uh, bird flu, swine flu. There have been instances of small epidemics that broke out and then were gone in a month or two. Yeah, it's not something I really was ever too concerned with. Yeah. But yeah, they they definitely have happened. And for the most part, nothing ever blew up like this did. So it wasn't something, you know, and even if you go back to early 2020, most of the talk was about China, Mm -hmm. right? Oh, you know, we got to close, you know, travel with China. And I actually have a friend who lives in China and works with tourism boards there. And I was talking to him in March about maybe we could plan something for April or May when this is done, because they're going to need to, you know, reintroduce themselves to the rest of the world. If people are afraid, well, that never happened. Yep. Um, and it wasn't until I would say May or June that it really kind of dawned on me that this was not going to go away. Mm-hmm. That this was cause, and, and I should add it hit me on both ends, both the industry side, the cruise companies, had to dry dock all their, you know, they've mothballed their ships, the airlines, the hotels, the uh, tour companies were probably the hardest hit. Uh, they're not selling any tours. So no one's advertising, no one's marketing. All that, all that money just disappeared. Then on the consumer side, no one's buying trips. So there's no affiliate sales. There's no, no one's searching for travel. So my, my traffic went down. So my display advertising revenue went down. Uh, so I got hit really from both ends. And I would say that at my peak, 95% of my income dried up. Wow. I was getting a dribble of display advertising, and I don't think I've had a single affiliate sale in half a year. And so that was April or May was was really the peak when no one was flying anywhere and travel was essentially dead. Yeah. And I mean, people still aren't for for all practical purposes. And what you're seeing is, uh, I mean, a spike in cases now in Europe. Uh, I'm in Wisconsin right now. We've had a a big spike here. So it's kind of become a seasonal thing almost. Mm -hmm. And uh, you're beginning to see that. So I'm not expecting anything to happen in terms of uh, getting back to where things were for at least two years at this point. Even if cases were to go down, people are still going to be frightened and they're not going to want to travel, so they're not going to travel. Yeah. And so it almost doesn't matter if things get solved because you're dealing with a perceptional issue. And the largest convention, uh, so ITB Berlin is the largest uh, tourism convention in the world. It was canceled last year because it's normally held in March. This year, they're like every other convention, it's virtual, uh, which is to say it's just not going to happen. And so it's, yeah, everything has just been wiped out. And before we we talk about what you've been able to do to change your business, what has it been like having traveled? I assume you traveled multiple places every month for the past 12 or 13 years. In fact, I think there were a couple of years where you were entirely nomadic. You didn't have a Yeah, for nine up. years, I was basically with, didn't have a house. Yeah. And then for the last 
five roughly. Uh, I've had an apartment. I would spend about a third to a half the year on the road okay. for the last five years. Okay. So, you know, uh, upwards of some years, you know, hundreds of days on the road and recently close to that. Uh, have there been any silver linings to being stuck in one place? You you haven't done this forever. You're, and now you're um, living in Wisconsin, which isn't known for being a tourist destination necessarily. And you're just uh, there full time. Yeah, it has. And I can I can talk more about this when I start to talk about what I did. But basically, it got me off the treadmill mm. of there's a lot of things people do in their lives that they do because they do. Right. Yep. They got started doing it and you just kind of do it, whether or not it's the best thing for you. And when an when something like this happens, you have to view it kind of in some ways as an opportunity. <clears throat> it's like, okay, what? I can't do this, that sucks, but what can I do instead? And it's, it's really kind of given me an opportunity to, to look back at the whole industry and say, okay, is this something I really wanna do or do I wanna do it this way? Or can I do it a different way? And that, I, I think, that in six months to a year, I'm going to be in a far better position than I was six months ago or a year ago. Taking care of employees has never been more important. For years, Gusto has been helping more than 100,000 small business owners run payroll, offer benefits, onboard new employees, and more. They call it the people platform. And it doesn't just look nice, it works. Your payroll taxes are filed, deductions are calculated, and your team gets paid. You can even offer health insurance and 401ks. Get three months free after your first payroll when you go to gusto.com slash fizzle. That's gusto.com slash fizzle. ConvertKid's free plan helps entrepreneurs like you turn your side hustle into a full-time career by growing your audience, promoting your business, and building a meaningful relationship with your audience in a fraction of the time it used to take. You can showcase your products and upcoming projects by building custom landing pages in minutes, saving time to help you focus on taking your business to the next level. ConvertKit's email designer helps you build beautiful, simple emails that help build your brainchild into a brand. Creating personalized emails about your business and products create brand advocates that can take you from an underground startup to a force that can't be stopped. ConvertKit helps entrepreneurs earn a living by evolving their side hustle with tools to help sell products and grow their business. Head over to convertkit.com slash fizzle show to sign up for a free account and find your audience faster. That's convertkit.com slash fizzle show. It's amazing. And um, I think, you know, maybe I, I can't imagine if you had decided three or four years ago to become a travel blogger and you finally had some success last year. You know, you finally had put all the pieces together and you were earning an income and then the rug was pulled out from under you. I can't imagine if, would that feel more difficult or if you had been doing it for, for 14 years? And I guess it's all perspective and how you think about it. But I, I love that you decided to, to see this as, I guess, an opportunity in some ways, but also just a, you have no choice. So, so what are you going to do? I've started several businesses in my life. And when you do that, you kind of go into startup mode. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> you know, uh, it's, it's, it's a mind frame where, I'm going to work my ass off. I'm going to hustle and I'm going to do things. And I will admit that my entire time traveling, I was not in startup mode. I did things to bring in some money, but it was primarily about travel. 
-hmm. That was my thing. That's why, that's why I started traveling. I didn't start traveling to start a business necessarily. Now, however, I am in startup mode and that's a very different thing. I, I've had to go back to that mindset and mm -hmm. that's not a bad thing. Yeah. I've traveled a lot. Uh, and, and for people who are listening, who don't, I mean, I've literally been to every continent. I've been to every state in the U S twice. I've been to every Canadian province three times. I've been to 130 countries. I mean, I've, I've really, and, and it's not just like I spent a night in those countries. I've really, I've been to every state in Germany, Australia, South Africa, flown mi millions of miles. I don't know if it's actually millions because I hate flying. So I tend to just <laughs> do a flight and then spend a lot of time wherever I am. But okay. I, I've really traveled a lot and yeah. that was my travel time. And so now, now this is, this is a different, time. it's a different chapter. Right. It's your startup time. So, right. um, okay. And, and this is really interesting to me because I, I announced recently, I, I took down a decade or more of social media posts and I basically hit the reset button on a lot of things personally. And I'm kind of in this mode of thinking about what's the next decade going to look like for me and starting over in a lot of ways. So I'm curious, and, and, and you had to do it somewhat urgently. I, I have the advantage, I guess, of being able to take my time. But what goes through your mind in terms of evaluating opportunities and considering what you could do and how much of your existing business and foundation were you able to use going forward? Uh, a fair amount. I mean, I had an email list. I had a following on social media. I had a reputation that I had developed within the industry and with a lot of people. So I wasn't starting from square one, but I was starting maybe from square two insofar as why people were paying attention and following me was not necessarily this new thing I was going to do. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't a, a guarantee that I would just have all these people follow, you know, come back. Um, that was kind of the biggest thing. And those were assets I had, and I figured I'd be crazy not to use them. And I think you also get to a point in your life where you basically become unemployable, right? You know, I briefly thought about, well, could I get a job? And I'm like, who honestly would pay me? Because I have not worked for an employer basically ever. <laughs> I mean, and that's not a joke because yeah. I had started a business pretty much right out of college. And, you know, during that entire time, I, I, I worked for myself or, you know, did whatever I wanted. I didn't ever have a job. So, you know, even if you consider yourself a sm pretty smart person, that doesn't necessarily mean you're going to have a resume that someone's going to want to uh, take a risk on, especially, you know, once you get to a certain age. Mm -hmm. uh, I just turned 50. So it's not like there's people bending over backwards to, to hire 50 year hire 50 year olds. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and how did you, did you end up just settling immediately on one idea or did you evaluate a lot of different ideas? No. So I had the idea. I've actually been thinking about doing something differently for a while, not seriously, mm. but throughout my whole life, I always sort of reinvented myself every four years, roughly. And this travel period is for the longest stretch I've gone without doing that. Whether it was four years at school, four years I was a top competitive debate coach. Um, I did my company for four years. I started another company for four years. I went back to school for four years. And then I kind of started traveling. Mm -hmm. And so I had, I had kind of thought about this. And two years ago, I had this idea of launching a new podcast. Mm 
I had a, a podcast that I did. CBS launched a podcast network several years ago, and they wanted me to do their travel show. And I, on purpose, did not use the name of my website, Everything Everywhere, because I didn't want them to have any kind of claim on the name. Mm-hmm. So I, I picked a different name. But the, one of the smart things I ever did was use that name because it's so generic. I didn't pick, you know, Backpacking Gary's travel blog or something like that. Right, right. I picked an extremely, you know, generic broad name. So I came up with an idea of doing a podcast that wasn't travel per se, but it was uh, trying to talk about stories or answer questions about things that I may have encountered during my travel, but maybe not. So the first episode I was going to do was on answering the question why the Mona Lisa was the most famous painting in the world. Why is a painting of a woman who's not a queen, she's not a saint, just a random person, why is that the most famous painting in the world? And I'd also heard a quote from the director of the Louvre that 25% of the people that come to the Louvre go to see the Mona Lisa and leave. So I started researching this and I really got down a rabbit hole and I was taking all these notes and eventually I had like two hours worth of content for an episode. And I realized, and this was taking me a very long time. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, one of the things I found was it's not 25% of the people. It's actually 80%. They go to see the Mona Lisa and leave. 80% of people just kind of yeah. pop in. They, they, they know that they want to see the Mona Lisa. Maybe they see a painting or two on the way and then right. they, and then they leave. Yep. And that's why there are those goddamn lines outside of the Louvre yeah. <laughs> that take forever. In fact, they keep debating moving it towards the entrance so they can get people in and out faster. Or just put it in a separate building so you don't have to wait with all the people that are just popping in and out. There's so much more to see there. Exactly. But this would have been a longer form show. And I was thinking, wow, maybe I could do a show a week. And then after all this, I was like, well, this is probably going to be every two weeks. And then I just started doing the math about monetizing a podcast and it didn't work. So this was two years ago. I had this idea. I had the cover art for the show done. I had a theme song already picked. I had all that stuff done. I just never pulled the trigger on it. Okay. So fast forward to... And May I, and of June. Can can I pause just for a second? I'm curious, uh, and and we don't always talk about numbers and things, but uh, on the show. But um, when you were doing that back of the envelope math about making a podcast work to monetize it, what was what were your key inputs there? How many shows you can produce? So mm-hmm. <clears throat> if you're familiar with, uh, are you familiar with Hardcore History, Dan mm-hmm. Carlin's podcast? Yeah, very very popular podcast, but. He does three shows a year, yeah, three, four to five hour shows a year. It's almost yeah. like he's publishing an audiobook, right? And even though he does get millions of downloads and it's a very successful podcast, he could be making so much more money if he split those into say five one hour episodes instead right. of one five hour episode. You just get more downloads, more, more ad buys. It's that simple. And I just realized that the time I would be putting into each episode in terms of research Mm -hmm. and the amount that I could produce didn't make a whole lot of sense. Yeah. It just really didn't. And, and, and what was your, your, um, if, if you were to monetize a podcast, what's the minimum number of shows you think you would have to produce to make that work? Uh, well, I'm going to get to the math behind this, um, uh, to explain it because so in, May or June, I went back to this idea in the podcast, and I realized this would be very difficult, not impossible, but difficult to succeed. And then it dawned on me, well, what if I did the exact opposite? Instead of taking a howitzer to a topic, 
what if I did the shotgun approach where I was to do a daily podcast with tons of short, interesting things that people could learn. And then I realized, okay, at a minimum, it's not, it doesn't quite work out this way, but a daily podcast is going to get seven times the download of a weekly podcast, mm -hmm. all things being equal. You might have more ads run on a weekly show because it's a bit longer, but by and large, and, and there are other successful uh, podcasts that have taken this approach. John Lee Dumas, mm -hmm. I think a lot of his success was the fact that his show was daily, yep. instead of weekly. Chris Gillibo has a daily podcast. Yep. And I actually talked to him about this at a, an event I saw him at a few years ago. And he talked about how having a daily show was helpful. And so I thought about this. I'm like, yeah, that could work. And then a lot of people have started podcasts this year because everyone's stuck at home. So there's been an explosion in it. However, there's been an explosion in abandoned podcasts because everyone's, you know, yep. stopping doing it. And almost all the podcasts are interview shows. Nothing wrong with interview shows. I'm on one right now. Yeah. I've been hosting one for 11 years uh, this week in travel. So certainly not against it. But if I did a monologue show, a lot of my favorite podcasts are monologue shows, to be completely honest. Yeah. That would be something that could separate me. And the other thing is I uniquely was in a position to do this show because I've seen so much of the world. I've been to so many of these places and the episodes are not necessarily about places, but I was the kid growing up who would read the encyclopedia, right? Or I, I can still to this day get lost in Wikipedia for hours going from article to article to article. And I just had all this random knowledge. You know, I, I competed in college bowl and stuff. And so I was like, you're, I think I, <laughs> to use an old reference, you're a Cliff Clavin from, uh, from exactly. And yeah. just as annoying. Yeah. And I'm like, well, I, I think I could, you know, there are other people that could do it, but not, not as many as that could do an interview show. So I thought I was in a unique position to do it. And a lot of my episodes have been about things that I experienced uniquely. Mm -hmm. uh, I did one on the town of Nijmegen in the Netherlands and every day they have these veterans that walk over this bridge that is dedicated to American soldiers who lost their lives during Operation Market Garden. Every single day they will walk over this bridge wow. and you can't find about this. I mean, it, it's hard to find about this unless you did it. Yeah. The only reason I did it is because I visited it and I participated with these guys and I was able to tell the story and I've, since then, I've had people that heard the episode and it's like, oh, I didn't know about this. And so there's a lot of stuff like that. And then I just started doing the math. Uh, okay, so it's, it's going to be shorter episode. Let's say I have a, a mid-roll spot that I put in the middle, which I have. Uh, you can get maybe $25 CPM for that. Maybe stick one at the end. That's a $10 or $15 CPM. Uh, so you're looking at maybe $40 RPM for the whole show. Yep. Well, if I get a subscriber, that subscriber downloads, listens to every show. That's 365 shows they'll have a year. So 0.365 times, uh, let's say $40 for an RPM would give me approximately $14, a little bit more. That's the value of a subscriber to me, $14 per year. Now, if I divide that by seven, which would, let's say what it would be for a weekly show, uh, you're looking at two. So the value of a subscriber is now significantly more because I'm doing a daily show. Mm -hmm. And it also changes something else. The cost of acquisition for a subscriber is exactly the same, regardless if your show is weekly, daily, or monthly. It right. doesn't matter. So I've actually started buying ads for my show on Overcast, which is a podcast mm -hmm. player, and 
that experiment is, I ran it for a month, is about to end in a few days. And I'm going to end up getting about 180 to 200 subscribers based on that ad buy, which is going to put the cost of acquisition somewhere around $1.50 to $1.80, mm-hmm. which as you'll notice is much less than $14, but not that much less than say $2 right. if I were doing a weekly show. Right. So I realized, well, this changes everything. So now I'm going to be running another ad buy and some other things like uh, some players like Castro and uh, Podcast Republic. And I'm also going to be targeting uh, some Facebook ads and some Instagram ads targeting specifically iOS users so I can get my site or the podcast ranked in Apple Podcasts because mm-hmm. that's the number one discovery source. And I think if you can rank well for that, you'll, you'll do fine. Um, but I'm able to fund it basically because of how I structured the show that if I had done it the way I originally wanted to, it wouldn't work. And the other, the other nice thing is, so it's a daily scripted show. I am writing a script every single day. I have to write somewhere between 1500 and 2,500 words because I have that script. I am publishing the script every day on my website, more content for the website, more traffic, more display ads, minor source of revenue, but doesn't hurt. I've started publishing a few of them on Medium. More eyeballs on it. Medium actually pays you, but more importantly, I can embed the podcast player and get more subscribers from that. Mm -hmm. I'm publishing somewhere in the neighborhood or writing somewhere in the neighborhood of around 40,000 words a month. I can bundle those together, put them on the Kindle Unlimited store, another source of revenue. I can then take the best of every year and put it into an actual book and that's another source of revenue. So there's all sorts of ways I can do this. I actually, so when I, when you start out with a podcast, the thing is you have no, you have no audience. So it's very hard to sell ads. Day one, episode one, I had ads in my show. And what I did is I went to the, the, the companies that I worked with in the travel industry and I went to them and said, I am going to do an ad for you for free using my affiliate code. Don't expect any sales, especially if it's travel, but that's, you know, they, they didn't care. It was free to them. Yep. So that's what I started doing. And then I also started doing other affiliate things for other notable podcast advertisers that I had heard like audible, mm-hmm. um, curiosity stream, Skillshare doing that. And what it did is it gave the perception of the, the podcast as being legit. Credibility. Yep. Right. I've already sold my first ad. I just started doing it this week. And basically, uh, they specifically mentioned the other ads that I run as one of the reasons they decided to go with it. Mm -hmm. And it's a travel destination that I've worked with in the past. So again, I'm leveraging what I've had before and it's, uh, I'm able to charge them more than what I might charge a regular advertiser because I'm doing the whole show about their destination. It's not like a, in a pitchy sort of way, yeah. but it's just like topics that, you know, from that area it could be a person that was famous or, or something else. And so I'm able to charge significantly higher CPMs mm-hmm. because it's the whole show. And what am I going to do with the, the, the income from that? I'm going to pump it right back into yeah, growing the show. To grow the show. Yeah. So this, this is uh this is really interesting. And, and for some people, listening to this who aren't familiar with the way that podcasts work and advertising and all that kind of stuff. You threw out a lot of, um, 
a lot of calculations and I can, I can really get a sense for how your mind works just listening to the way that you are describing all of this and how you decided to go about it. And I, you know, really at the end of the day, what you have described is a way for a writer, essentially you're, you're writing. I mean, yes, you're, you're dictating or you're reading what you've written in podcast form, but basically the important piece here is that you're writing 1500 words a day and that you're then able to turn that into all these different sources you've got, you know, you mentioned publishing this on your own site, turning it into a podcast, putting it on medium. And at the end of the day, you know, a lot of people probably aren't aware, but podcasts right now are driving really good CPMs for the publishers. You end up earning a lot more from advertising on a podcast than you do from a display ad or something like that. So that's probably, that's probably where the meat is for you. And you know, there's two revenue streams I haven't even talked about. One is I can take all of my audio files and eventually put them on YouTube. Mm-hmm. I'm going to have someone like put some stock images and, and yep. make it kind of interesting. I think yeah. that could potentially be huge because there are sites that do exactly what I do on YouTube yeah. with stock images that have millions of subscribers. So yep. there's clearly an audience. Yep. And the other thing is one of the things I would do is sell tours to my readers. And in the course of, all, you know, in all the stuff I do, my Instagram account, I got 192,000 followers. I got a hundred. 50,000 followers on Twitter, all this stuff. When people met, would meet me in person, the thing they would always mention first and foremost is uh, the podcast, This Week in Travel that I've done. Because they could hear my voice and they develop a greater rapport and understanding of who you are than just reading text or seeing photos. So I think that when it's time to travel again, whenever that is, I am going to have a real easy time selling tours and selling them out from this podcast. And I have so many more ideas of stuff I want to do, like just a trip in Rome where we can go see all the stuff that no one sees that I have a growing list of. Um, and, and just all sites of, types of other things. It's going to be so much easier with this podcast. And you can easily make 20 grand off of a tour, you know, for a, a seven to 10 day tour that, that you lead. So I think it's, there's even more stuff I'm going to be able to do at some point in the future. It's just a matter of time. As far as YouTube, I'm going to hold off on that until I can get in enough revenue because eventually I want to start hiring writers. So I'm literally just reading the show, doing the, the actual yeah. audio production, and then I can start doing other things. That, that would be amazing because the, through all of this, as you've described all of this, the biggest question mark for me is how do you write 1,500 words a day, every day? And of course, you've been a writer for a very long time and you have, you know, some abilities there, but for the uninitiated or, or someone who hasn't written on that kind of schedule, uh, it just sounds incredibly daunting. So tell us about that. And also I'm curious for the average, you know, 1500 word script, how many minutes of, of podcast does that end up being? So my average length of a show is between seven minutes and I'd say 12. And my longest show has been 15 and my shortest one's been five. So it's about that. A 2,000 word script will get me nine to 10 minutes, I would say. Mm -hmm. One of the things I've discovered is that your ears are more forgiving than your eyes. If you were to take the transcript of this conversation we are having right now, it would not read as well as it sounds. Mm -hmm. There's going to be pauses and ums and ahs and other things. 
Uh, your grammar is not necessarily perfect when you're talking to someone. But as we listen, our ears are very forgiving of that because that's, that's just the way we always talk in a first draft. But we don't write that way. Yeah. So I'm basically writing a first draft and then reading it. And that's okay for a podcast. Now, if I go back and put this in a book, it will require more editing. Okay. I understand that. And that's fine. But for the purposes of what I'm doing, I think it's good enough. And you have mm -hmm. to make it sound or you're, I'm writing it as if I would talk, which yeah. is not necessarily how you would write. Okay. So it's a bit more forgiving and easy to do. Uh, for a podcast than if I was trying to publish a, a blog post every day. Right. Okay. So you're, it, when you're saying that when you sit down and, and I know um, I've heard of people who get into a daily writing habit and they, they force themselves to sit down and write X number of words, usually like a thousand or something. And they're very forgiving about how they, they, what they require themselves to do, because the point is to get the words on the page and not necessarily to create something that is perfect and polished and, and publishable. So in, in that way, it's, it's journaling more than writing a finished piece. And, and you're somewhere in between there. It's not as if you're just scribbling because you have to have research and so on involved. But uh, you're saying that you don't go through the same grueling editing process that you normally would. No. Uh, research probably takes more time than anything else. Mm -hmm. And the length of research, if I'm doing a show about a single person or a single story, those tend to be the easiest ones to write. Mm -hmm. Because, but if I'm doing a sort of a, a, a bigger, something that's larger in scope. So after we're done talking, I'm going to record, well, what should be yesterday's show because I ended up watching the election results. Um, and that was about, it answers the question, who's the richest person in history? And I just, go through a list of people, but I also talk about why, why it's so hard to make these historical comparisons. Not only do you have issues of inflation, but the size of the economy was different. And then what do you buy with billions of dollars in the Renaissance? You know, you can't travel, you, you know, the quality of homes, every healthcare, everything else isn't going to be as good. So that was a bit different. And then I'm, then I'm going to start writing the show for today, which is just a history of close elections. Cause you know, it's topical, yeah. not, not talking about presidential stuff, but like there have been elections in history in different parts of the world where they literally tied or mm. there was one vote and how yeah. do they resolve this? And that's going to be a little easier, I think, for me to research. Um, the longest episode I ever did was explaining the electoral college. And that was one of the easiest ones for me to write because I didn't have to really research it because I just knew everything. And I just yeah. wrote it down. One of the hardest ones for me was doing it on the history of how humans use fire. Cause that was, that was so much I had to go through to, to put that story together of, you know, anthropology and stuff. And are, are you, are you batching anything or is this a daily process? You show up right. And then literally every day and then record later in the day. But I have, so I'm on 120 shows now yeah and I have enough that I could probably take an older show and plug it in, you know, like as a best of. Yeah to fill a day if I wanted to, Absolutely. but I'm in that, I'm in that phase right now. You know, if you, if you look at like an exponential growth curve, it's flat mm -hmm. and then it turns yeah. up and I'm still in the flat part. I've only been doing this since July 1st. Yeah. It was when I launched the first show. And, uh, so yeah, I'm in the stage where I just have to work a lot and that's just life. And, 
and that's how it goes. And, um, and you, you're convinced that the model works. You're convinced that people like the content and it's just a matter of digging in and putting your head down and doing this for 12 months until you start to see some solid results. Well, it's already growing. I mean, still have a lot to go. It's not great, but it's, I'm in the upper 50% of, of podcasts uh, yeah. based on all the stats I've seen already. Uh, the feedback has been very positive. You know, a lot of parents are now, because it's a short episode, they yeah. can listen to it when they take their kids to school. Mm -hmm. And the kids like it. Uh, mm -hmm. One of my friends, eight-year-old daughter, uh, they'll want to listen to some of them twice in a row because they because it's all these random topics and it's not the kind of stuff they're getting in school. So part of my marketing going forward I used to be a very successful speech and debate coach. And some of my friends who are still coaches have been listening to the show and they're like, oh, we're using these for speech ideas. And then a light bulb went off. So last Friday, I went to one of the biggest speech podcasts and I did an interview for them to try to get that community to start listening to the show. Yeah. I think homeschooling uh, that community is a natural for the show because it's something every day, you know, I keep the, the show very clean. I keep politics out of it. Uh, nothing controversial, no, no swearing. Uh, so it's kid friendly. So that is something I think I can pursue. Uh, I'm a member of Mensa. That's something I'm going to probably pursue as well. I think it's something that'd be very interesting for, you know, intelligent people who are curious. Yep. So there's all these niche communities that I haven't really started to, um, do marketing down. Yeah. But I, I think they're naturals for the kind of show I'm doing. And that's the kind of thing I've read a lot about podcast marketing, you know, all these articles and stuff. And so much of it is just generic. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just like an idea advertise on Facebook. Okay. How do you, <laughs> to who? You know, and yeah, like one of the, you know, I was looking at advertising on Reddit. So <clears throat> there's a big history subreddit. No one has ever suggested what you link to when you run an ad for a podcast on Reddit. Do I link to the Apple podcast page? <laughs> Do I link to the Google podcast page? Do I link to a page that has a list of everywhere you can subscribe to the podcast? Yeah. No one has actually done it. Everyone just talks about it in theory. So that's mm -hmm. the other thing I'm doing is I'm actually putting my money where my mouth is and I'm going to start running ad experiments to actually find out what works because I cannot find this data anywhere or if it exists, no one's sharing it. And so I, I could potentially even monetize that knowledge somehow. And I, I know a lot of people, they do meta content, like they start a podcast and then they do a podcast on how to podcast or a podcasting course. <laughs> I don't want to do that. Right. Um, but I do think there's something to be said for how to, you know, use advertising or to do a lot of these niche podcasting podcast marketing that I just haven't heard anyone talk about yeah. outside of beyond a theoretical level. I love it. Uh, and, and I'm sure the wheels are turning for a lot of people just in the way that you are turning one piece of content into a lot of different opportunities. That's amazing. And I can't wait to check back in and, and find out how these experiments have gone. Thinking now about this year that isn't over yet, but 2020 has been one hell of a year for a lot of people. And thinking back on the change that you've had to make and the things that you've had to give up and your future next year, what, what are you taking away from all of this? 
when I was doing travel stuff, I wanted to travel. So I wasn't thinking in terms of a business model. I just did it. And then I kind of figured out ways to make money from what I was doing. And that was fine, but it wasn't great. This, because I'm starting from square one with a business model in mind, I am far more confident about the long-term success of this because it's so clear what it is and it's clean in terms of I have an ad, you buy the ad, you give me money, deal complete. Yeah. Uh, the numbers and the metrics are simple. Uh, it's just, I don't know, it's, it's a cleaner business model. And I think I'm even going to, you know, as, as I'm going to be able to tie into some of the things I did in the past as that industry comes back to life eventually. And I have ideas for things I'm still going to do in the travel space. Mm -hmm. I'm going to, I've, I've uh, rebranded a lot of my travel stuff to a different uh, name. So I, I had a very popular Facebook travel group and I've rebranded it to the League of Extraordinary Travelers. And I'm going to focus more on a community website because there is nothing out there for really well-traveled people. Mm -hmm. And to, to create something that's not only a, an email newsletter, but it's, it's the perfect group that a lot of these companies want to target because they spend four to five figures annually on travel to exotic places uh, that, you know, building an email list for that, creating some events, but I just don't see any point in putting effort into that now. Yeah. Until, until no travel, travel comes back. Exactly. Right. So I, I love the way that, um, I love the way that you're looking at this. I, I really appreciate you sharing behind the scenes, how you came up with this idea and how you're looking at the business model. I think that's really smart because a lot of people think so much about what should my topic be, or, you know, what do I want to build my business around in terms of subject and so much less about the business model. So that that's refreshing. And I love that you've been able to figure out ways to use the assets and the foundation that you already have and to, to create something very quickly to be able to recover from this horrible thing that has befallen all of us and, and that you're thinking positively about it instead of just kind of wallowing, which I'm guessing a lot of people have done this year, just wallowing in the fact that everything's dried up and, and, uh, and have decided not to fight. Whereas you've, you've really decided just to, maybe your back was in the corner a little bit and you're fighting your way out of it, which is great. Most of the people I know in travel, if they've done something different, they've just started a new website and it's usually a destination website based on where they live, which is not a bad idea. Mm -hmm. uh, but most people are simply doubling down on what they're doing and that's fine, but I just wanted to get out of that environment. And here's the other nice thing is cause I'm doing this, all the people I know in travel, this doesn't compete with them at all. So they're much more open to helping promote this podcast because it doesn't step on their toes. Yeah. Because it, it's not a competitive thing. So that's been a big help as well. Um, Love it. But yeah, I, I, there is no topic. My topic is literally everything. <laughs> and that's the name of the show. That's, and, and, that's, and that was the name of your, your travel website yeah. as well. I mean, that, that's so convenient. Yeah. And I can, you know, I, I've just converted. I may actually end up putting a subdomain under my site just for the podcast. So it's a cleaner interface. Mm -hmm. Right now it's just one page of you know, links of, of episodes. Uh, I'm not worried about that right now. That can wait till a, a different time. But uh, right now it's just, you know, growth. And, you know, it also when you look at in terms of uh, monetization, the 
figure that people often throw out for when you can really start selling ads is like 5,000 downloads per episode. I still have a ways to go to get to that point. But I figure, okay, with a daily show, I can make about $100 an episode. If I had 5,000 downloads, that's fine. But if I can get 5,000, there's really no reason, especially because of the economics of my show, I can invest in advertising that I couldn't get to 50,000, mm -hmm. right? So at 50,000, I'm not getting $100 per show. I could get $1,000 per show. That's $1,000 a day. And at that point, I'm like, okay, well, at that point, I'll probably won't be writing the show anymore or researching it. I'll have people, I'll hire people to do that. I can afford that for, for that much. Then I can start doing another show or more shows or yeah. put more efforts on YouTube and just keep growing it and leverage the advertisers that I'm getting on the, the mothership show uh, to do other things. Mm -hmm. And you know, I may even make one programming change with the current show in that um, I was thinking about doing a weekly thing where I bring in some sort of famous historian or something else. Are you familiar with Pardon the Interruption on ESPN? Yes. To do that, but with history. Uh huh. So we just do like a five minute thing where it's like the bell rings. We talk about this subject, tell the bell rings again, then we move on to the other subject and people <laughs> argue I, about I, famous people in history. Yeah. Uh, and, and I've gotten a really good reaction to that. And another idea, uh, if you look to Patreon, so I set up a Patreon account with this that's done okay. I mean, I, I've got people actually spending the highest tier, uh, which surprised me. But the, the biggest Patreon accounts are podcasts. And what they do is they tend to put half of their episodes uh, on behind the paywall. Hmm. So like the Chapo Trap House is a political show. And I think it's a daily show, but half of their episodes are, you have to be a Patreon subscriber. They only have one tier, $5 a month, and you can listen to the podcast. And that's all there is. And I could easily do something like, okay, if you're on Patreon, maybe the weekend shows are behind Patreon or something yeah. like that. Yeah. So there's, there's other things I can do as well um, that I'm looking at doing. In addition to just launching new shows, I could do an interview show with you know, famous authors that are kind of in the nonfiction realm. There's a lot of, you know, like the, the best parts of Joe Rogan that are not the conspiracy theorists, the MMA fighters or the comedians, <laughs> like yeah. the interesting people who've written <laughs> What's books. Left? Right. Exactly. exactly. I mean, to just focus on that or to do another daily show. That's just like a, this day in history type show, or, I mean, there's lots of things I can do, but like I said, I'm just so much more confident. And the other thing is my travels were intimately tied to me. I couldn't really sell that as a business. This is something I could sell. If yeah. I, you know, the podcast or a podcast network, you know, it'd be easy to just bring on another host to read it once you have the subscriber base. That, that's all stuff that can be done. Yeah. So I have an asset that I could actually conceivably uh, turn around at sell at some point. So. Gary, thank you so much for coming on today and, and sharing and uh, can't wait to watch your growth coming up. For people who want to check out the show and um, and listen to episodes from the history of ketchup to uh, the Earth's most extreme places, there are, there are 120 of these that you can listen to now. You can find the show Everything Everywhere, anywhere that you listen to podcasts, or you can go to everything-everywhere.com. Gary, thank you so much and uh, best of luck to you with the show. Thank you. 
To all you listeners out there, thanks to you for being here. If you liked today's episode, would you leave us a review or tell somebody about the show? We depend on listeners like you to help us get the word out, and a review or referral is the best way to show your appreciation for the show. As always, you can find the full show notes over at fizzleshow.co. That's F-I-Z-Z-L-E-S-H-O-W dot C-O. I'm Corbett Barr, and until next time, thanks for listening to The Fizzle Show.